0: This is Grow Your Life with Jason Scott Montoya, a podcast with stories and systems to live better and work smarter. Welcome to another Inspirational People interview. Today, I'm here with my friend, Addison Williams. Addison, say hello.
1: Hi, guys.
0: Addison is an entrepreneur, special operations combat veteran, former professional gamer, musician, member of Mensa, uh, and a comedy screenwriter. Addison and I originally met, became friends freelancing several years ago for a shared client, um, which is probably an interesting story in and of itself. (laughs) Um, Since then, we've collaborated on a variety of projects and conversations, um, and we recently launched uh, Movie Shapes, which is a better way to share um, and find movies that we love. So let's go ahead and just jump right in, Addison. You know, 2020 has been an interesting and challenging year for many people. Um, how can we wisely look back at it in retrospect um, as we reflect and, and how can that help prepare us for, for the next year that's likely to be as challenging as well and probably different ways? So,
1: I like, I like it. No, no punches pulled. Um, yeah, 2020 has been hard. 2021 is probably going to be hard too. That's true. Uh, something that works really well for me in hard times is remembering that there are other people. In it with you then that doesn't mean that we're we're all in this together some people really aren't in the same place as you right now yeah but remembering that there's someone who is in the same experience especially with it being global like the pandemic yeah and remembering you know if you're experiencing extreme tragedy right like the loss of a loved one or something you know due to this pandemic or you don't get to be with them you know in their final hours other people have experienced that, as, as crazy as that is to say. Just having that moment of realizing this connects you to somebody else, that it, it is a little of a silver lining, but it it's also a relief because being feeling lonely on top of all the other tragedy you're experiencing, right? Like that just complicates it. So just feeling connected, maybe even connecting with somebody and talking through your your mm-hmm. shared experience. Yeah. That. Is yeah. Yeah. Good.
0: Well, I guess t- tell me more about like the idea of loneliness and, and, um, I know me, both you and I, you know, as freelance, you know, specialists working with, um, business owners, you know, we kind of chose a lonely path in, in a regard, right. As opposed to, uh, um, the alternatives out there. So what, what is that, what's going on there and what does, I, I, I would suspect that loneliness is a big issue right now.
1: Well, that, that is a, a good way of looking at it. Cause there's both like just being alone, right? Being, if you're an introvert you want some time alone, right? That's like you time and self time, uh, but yeah. being alone when you don't want to be, that is mm. the point where it's suffering. Uh, yeah. and I think a lot of people experience that on quarantine. I got a little bit of the opposite. I got more time alone than I, <laughs> that I had actually been craving. Yeah. Um, but I think the biggest thing is that even if you're feeling lonely, there are other people feeling lonely too. It's sort of the Eleanor Rigby thing from the Beatles, right? Like uh, Eleanor's lonely and Father McKenzie's lonely. Uh, but they could have they actually related to each other. They just didn't know they were so close, right? Yeah. Um, so th- that's how I think about it right now. Sometimes I can relate to other people. Yeah. about our mutual loneliness. And that's a very <laughs> not lonely thing. Yeah. Um, and as a freelancer, I think we experience the same thing. Um, you know, it's always incredible those times where I get to talk to some other freelancer and be like, man, isn't it crazy how much we have to navigate our own ship alone? Nobody, mm-hmm. nobody can tell us when we're lost what to do. Uh, and then they're like, I have the same experience. And then suddenly you're like, Oh, well you could maybe inform my experience. Tell me some advice. I know yeah. that I've, I've even come to you and been like, Hey, I don't know what to do. And you're not in my business. Could you still tell me what you've done? And it, it actually is weird. You're like, Oh, I have this, this other yeah. completely isolated experience. And yet we can talk about it and relate. Yeah.
0: Um, well, and yeah. And for me, it's, it's almost like, well, if I, you know, when I first met you or, uh, when I come across others, I see, they're on that ship, right? And I see what what's ahead of them in their journey. And I already want to like, okay, here's what's coming, you know, Br- brace yourself for this, this and that. And here's how you can prepare for that and endure it well, right?
1: <laughs> I do think, I know I'll, I'm kind of cutting a little bit on what you may want to chat about, but that is one of the benefits of like learning history is sometimes... There are these kind of messages from the past that are like a Jason Montoya 100 years ago or a Jason Montoya (laughs) thousand years ago, who's thinking, "Oh my gosh, someone else is going to experience this, and it's going to be so long after this, or somewhere else on this planet, and I'm not going to be able to personally tell them what's coming up, or or even you know maybe you know if it's in the moment, maybe not getting ahead of them, but just not even being able to talk to them." Yeah. So uh, sometimes I read things and I'm like, what was that warning about? And then something happens in my life and I'm like, oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you mentioned the idea of, you know, of understanding that there are other people that are struggling possibly in the same ways or similar ways. So what's the danger of not having that appreciation or understanding? If someone chooses not to take your advice, what's the cost or the risk to them?
1: Oh, if, um, if they, Oh, I get you. So, uh, the big thing is if you don't acknowledge that people will understand, you're less likely to reach out for help. You just think nobody will get it. Um, yeah. so you're kind of giving yourself the gift of being able to reach out. If you know that someone else is going to relate, yeah, uh, you're going to reach out. And what's crazy is that, uh, you may want to help others, but you think that your experiences are too isolated. Right? Maybe you've come out on the other side. Right? Yeah. You went through a hard time. You're out of it and you're thinking, oh, but that was too crazy. Nobody else is experiencing it. You're not going to seek out others to help them. Yeah. You, you, you put too much of a unique spin on what you experienced. It's yeah. probably something universal. And you can either reach out to get help for yourself or you can reach out to help others. You can seek them out. So I yeah. think those are the losses that you have if you don't admit okay. how
0: common it is. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, so it reminds me, I'm, I'm reading the Gulag Archipelago. And the part I'm at is, he, and he, he says specifically, the you know these people had to go through this horrific interrogation. But one of the most memorable things that they experienced was after that interrogation, when they arrived at the prison camp and they saw another person, another prisoner that went through what they went through. And it was such a powerful moment for them um, because they had been so alone through such a terrible situation. Right?
1: Yeah, that reminds me of... Um in survival innovation school in the military a lot of people talk about how <clears throat> when they go through this school they know that it's um role-playing they know that it's fake but they are actually made to suffer they're abused a little bit yeah and when they get out they said you know a lot of people will cry tears of joy
0: yeah yeah
1: <laughs> so there is a there is a comfort in it. like for example they they'll raise an american flag and yeah. even people who aren't Extremely patriotic about it, will still be moved by it. Mm. Uh, and it's a shared experience. Those people get out of it and they're like, man, wasn't that crazy? So I, yeah. I think you're absolutely right.
0: Yeah. So let's take a moment, step back. Um, you know, let's tell me about you. Who are you? What's your story? Tell me about your work. How does that intersect with the work you do?
1: My story is long. Um, uh, I am Addison Blue Williams. And I say that because I write as Addison Blue. So first and middle name. Uh, I like to have a little boundary with between my creative self and my non-creative self. Yeah. Um, My story. Well, I am a writer and uh, whether I'm applying that to screenwriting or marketing, I've always, I say, I've always known I, I would be a writer, but since I, you know, got over being an astronaut or a cowboy or or whatever, (laughs) (laughs) um, next up was writer. Yeah. And I say that because um, writing informed a lot of my life decisions, even early on, uh, I started having this sort of meta uh, experience of fiction, meaning that I was aware that, um, you know, these stories came from people who couldn't, couldn't tell them without having had some experience that informed it, Yeah. you know, uh, even if the Iliad was about, you know, the Trojan War, and even if it wasn't. You know as crazy as they make it sound he probably did go fight somewhere and yeah. that informed it yeah. um, and i have asked myself a lot it you know since childhood uh, when i get confronted with a choice i say what's the decision that would lead to experiences that'll enrich my life and enrich my ability to tell stories and mm-hmm. i know that that's weird because I think a lot of people think like what's going to make me wealthiest or happiest or most comfortable or, you know, yeah. avoid conflict. But sometimes I, I give myself an excuse to get out of my comfort zone that way. Yeah. Um, so in high school that was joining a rock band. Yeah. Um, and in college, I, I played music all the way through there professionally, or, or when I did have the chance to play professional video games, you know, nobody made me do that. I just, there, I was succeeding and I came to a point where I had to, you know, raise money to keep playing, yeah. uh, you know, uh, figure out some sort of solution to travel and do that stuff. And I, I said like, what would be the, the most exciting thing to do? And so I went out and found sponsors, Yeah, uh, but it also leads to some cool decisions. Like uh, I have four kids. And part of that was just, you know, being young and asking myself, like, would I, would I be more excited of the experience, you know, of not having kids or of having kids. And I realized that, you know, the, the experiences I wanted to have was totally compatible with a big family and that having a bigger family would, would add to the excitement or the just, I don't know the, the overall experience, right. It's richer. Yeah. um, Even if I do all the other same things that I had wanted to do. Yeah. So um, it, you know, I'm just, I am an adventurous introvert, which is a weird way of saying it kind of like the Hobbit, right. Like Bilbo Baggins is both, a homebody he doesn't want to leave but he leaves and he has a great adventure yeah um, I give myself this excuse so I don't have to just say like I want to try this yeah or I'll regret it mm-hmm. <laughs> right if I'll regret it if I don't I get to just do it this way I'll say what's going to make for the better story so that's kind of the Addison Williams story
0: <laughs> okay and how does that intersect with uh, the military and also where you're at now with it
1: Oh great. so yeah, the military definitely was I mean on the and, one hand, there was financial decisions. yeah right? like I'd like to have a steady income after the economy crashed in 2008. Uh, but I had a college degree and I chose to enlist instead of going as an officer, so that was the the more adventurous of the two yeah. well and
0: wh- and why why did you pick uh, the branch that you did versus the Marine Corps or the Air Force or something else?
1: I wanted an abundance of opportunities. Uh, You know, the Marine Corps is small and the job you get is usually the job you keep for a long, long time. Yeah. And the Air Force, you know, looking back, I I probably could have done something really cool in the Air Force, like pararescue jumpers. I just didn't have the vocabulary to know I was looking for that. Got it. Um, Right. I did great on the aptitude tests and maxed out the physical fitness tests, So I could have done something cool. I just didn't know the Air Force had a cool job. So got it. Uh, I went with the coolest jobs I could find in the army, you know, in my opinion.
0: And did writing intersect with that at all in any way?
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely thought, you know, if, uh, if I don't, if I stay with the military for a long time, great, I'll be a, you know, a soldier. And if I don't, then I'll have some great stories to tell when I go back to that. Um, But even when I was in uh, I went in and became an 18 echo, uh, which is a communications Sergeant for, uh, special operations. Uh, and then while I was in that training pipeline, I switched to psyop, which is, you know, marketing and storytelling for the military. Um, and then even then I was, I wrote articles for, uh, you know, our, our regimental magazine and things like that. So I can't escape writing. Right. That's, it is what I do. So yeah, uh, I brought that to every job and I let those jobs make me better at it.
0: Yeah so how did you uh pivot you know we're, we're in a year of pivoting so how did you pivot from military to to civilian life and how was that and was it challenging and wh- or what challenges did you face and and how did that where did that lead you
1: uh so i think this would be something i can speak to a lot of people it's this idea that we have to stop thinking that we're going to become something and just be the thing uh, the best way of putting it is when I was getting out of the army, they said, what are you going to do next? And I was like, oh, I want to become a writer. And there was a certain point after which I should have just said, I'm a writer. I was I was writing. I did get money for it. Uh, yeah. But I just didn't know what I was going to feel, what was going to be the experience or who was going to put their stamp of approval and be like, you are a writer. Yeah. And uh, when I was in my MFA program for writing, uh, my professor one day, required me she's like hey um you are a writer so don't say i'm becoming a writer she made me write it down and then take a picture (laughs) of it i am a writer and then send it to her and and a bunch of other people to just be like there you're done you're now a writer don't don't ever look back
0: well I, i don't know where she got it but um that that's a very dale carnegie uh a concept he talks about speak of the future as if it's today and um same kind of thing when i went through the course they had us do something very similar
1: yeah, Stephen King says, if you've ever written something and somebody wrote you a check for that thing and you cashed the check <laughs> <laughs> and used the money to pay for something, you are a professional writer. Yeah, and I think that's just beautiful. I hadn't heard that quote at the time, you know, that my professor got to me, but yeah. that is the truth. Um, mm-hmm. We just are so afraid of this imposter uh, being imposters that. Yeah. uh, we are afraid to realize like, no, we, we've made it. We may not be, you know, a Hollywood world famous writer. Yeah. Uh, We're not Shakespeare or JK Rowling or whatever, but we are the thing.
0: Yeah. And so uh, where's the, is there a danger there in terms of leaning into that too, too hard where we, we become a fraud where we truly are trying to be something that we can't deliver on when we're talking to a client or, or, um,
1: yeah, that will come to light. Uh, I have met genuine frauds, right? People yeah. who, will, who will say I was a Navy SEAL, and they weren't a Navy SEAL. <laughs> um, <laughs> or people who, you know, they'll, they say like, oh, you know, I guarantee results in 30 days, and then they disappear, right? That kind yeah. of thing. But ultimately, I think culturally, we just lean really hard on people telling them not to be a fraud. And I think it just comes from other people projecting their insecurities. They're like, I didn't become the thing I wanted to be. So I'm going to tell you that you're not the thing that you want to be. But sometimes they're just wrong. They're wrong about us or, you know, they may have even been wrong about themselves. Yeah. Um, If you're not okay with playing in the amateur field, like I I am a professional writer. I get paid to do it. Um, I write stuff that I want to sell. But I don't have to qualify that. I don't. I really don't. And putting, you know, an asterisk on your ability is silly. I think um, maybe this is too uh, on topic, but Doctor Jill Biden is a doctor, and and people call her Doctor Jill Biden. And I know that uh, people say, "Well, where did you get your degree, or what is it in?" And that doesn't matter. If you earn the title, you can you can claim it. Just claim it. Own it. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how does that? I'll lead to what you're vocationally doing today.
1: Well, I am, uh, I'm actually doing screenwriting. Um, I'm working on a pilot for uh, a pretty big fellowship. Um, The veterans writing program has me working on one and then I'm polishing another older one. Um, But I mean, ultimately I'm looking to sell those and and potentially staff a show, which is a lot of people don't know staffing TV shows is like a, it's a freelance Writing job, so yeah, it goes with my current lifestyle, and it's <laughs> well, yeah, it's just a different
0: uh, area of freelancing, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and what's great is it's compatible because then when you know when your season's up and you don't know if you know the show's getting renewed or you're coming back or whatever, you I I can just continue to work on my marketing consulting, and, and it's really just such a great um, compatible world, you know? So yeah, you work on whichever. So, is yeah,
0: yeah, dive into that a little bit. This idea of diversifying our income or diversifying our, our channels? You know, I, I hear a lot of stories. I'll use YouTube as an example. You get these YouTubers and they put all their eggs in that YouTube basket, the algorithm changes and all of a sudden their income's gone. Right. And they don't have a more holistic business. So they, they struggle and and that happens, you know, pick the medium that probably happens across the board. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that?
1: What's well, challenging because uh, I think we normally see these, binaries we think it's i'll do one thing or i'll do a million things and that's what leads us away from diversification we realize like oh we were good at nothing so we we just do one thing so if you're that youtuber you might have been dilly-dallying and (laughs) uh, (laughs) in a million different media forms and then you know youtube's the only one that stuck and you maxed it out Um, So for me, part of it is um, I love writing entertainment and I love uh, marketing strategy and writing. Uh, But that doesn't mean I'm also uh, writing poetry. Yeah. I'm not going to diversify that way. I don't enjoy writing poetry and I'm not good at it. Yeah. Uh, Nor do I think, you know, there's the demand for me to jump into the market against some of these more competitive people. Yeah. So so sometimes diversification can be a, a bad thing. Uh, but for me, it's kind of um, a good way of putting it. Is I've got a safe bet. Mm-hmm. I can I can work on marketing writing, and it's um, and it's always something I'm going to enjoy and be passionate about. And then there's sort of the windfall, winner take all gamble of just investing some of my time into uh, creative projects because I'm good at it, and there's a high demand for it with so many streaming channels. And um, yeah, I've got stories to tell, uh, and it's a fun experience. So even no matter what happens, I. I like doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, This is the, uh, it is the end state, right? Yeah. So it's kind of, um, it's taking a gamble on myself, you know? Yeah.
0: So I guess the other thing that comes to mind is how do you differentiate the difference between experimentation and mastery?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, that is such a tough question because there's, when you're achieving mastery, there's a point at which you can't even appeal to outside <laughs> opinion to validate it yeah Uh, so a great example is that once you're a neurosurgeon it's kind of tough to you know then assert yourself as the best of the neurosurgeons uh, because it's only you and your competitors the other best neurosurgeons who can really validate that claim right Mm. so yeah um, it eventually in mastery becomes about something else right? The the most memorable neurosurgeon one day, maybe the one that kids learn about in history, is going to be one who, you know, invents some new uh, procedure that saves more stroke victims, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but that doesn't mean they had the most skilled hands or they saved the most lives when they were doing it. It'll just be something else, right? Something that sticks historically or broadens them out. And uh, ultimately that is really just, right? Other people may say like, I'm better, but are we are we looking for what we consider mastery to ourselves or, yeah. or what other people do that's that's a struggle for even me or i imagine for you and, and other experts yeah. in their field
0: yeah <clears throat> so i guess on that topic you know let's let's dive into the the concepts of of living better and working smarter so what does it mean to you to work smarter
1: oh well <laughs> i'm very uh, opinioned about working opinionated about what working smarter is is because i think a lot of people um okay i'll i'll say who those people are me um i spent a lot (laughs) of my career (laughs) i spent a lot of my career trying to find smarter ways to make myself fit other people's career mold okay Um, and that's not actually working smarter um, that's kind of like trying to figure out a more efficient way to dig yourself into a hole instead of figuring out how to get out of the hole, right? Like okay. yeah. you can be more efficient towards the wrong end. And yeah. I think a lot of people do that in work. I do that in work. I, I stop me I to stop projecting and just say what, <laughs> <Tell> the <truth. laughs> yeah. um, there are clever ways to accomplish bad goals. And I want to discourage other people from going down that route. I do that with work. Um, I guess in, uh, maybe a younger man's example is like energy drinks can get you through like a, you know, a 55 hour work week yeah. Uh, and coffee is maybe a little healthier than energy drinks. So it's, yeah. it on the superficial level, you might be like, Oh, this made a smarter move. Uh, but that misses the point. You should, you've got to shorten that work week. It's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, to, to put in 55 hours of knowledge work anyway, right. Yeah. Customer service work or knowledge work. You shouldn't be doing that uh, yeah. forever. Yeah. Um, So in my life, that looks like, you know, sometimes I turn down opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I leave projects, even if they have potential. Yeah. Um, So, you know, working smarter uh, is like myth busting. That's what I think it is. You actually have to challenge things. People are like trying to find smarter ways to like hustle and grind. Um, And hustling and grinding is great. If you're just starting out, you have a ton of resources. You don't know where to put them. You got to test things out and fail fast. That's great. Yeah. Um, but if you hustle and grind forever, uh, you're missing the point of why you are hustling. Yeah. Right? You hustle to get somewhere and then you, you stay there and you build something. So,
0: yeah. So uh, Elon Musk might have a say that you're wrong. So what what would you say to Elon Musk? Who's trying to, to do the opposite of what you're describing?
1: Um, some of that is just, he's building a character, a myth. Yeah. Um, he's not really what he claims to be in every aspect. I mean, sure. He, works hard and has lots of ideas but he has no stress of paying his bills right he mm-hmm. can have somebody else buy his clothes and get them cleaned and <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, and it gives him the ability to do some things that we can't compare ourselves to yeah he, he's hustling but for him hustling might be like taking a plane and you know going and doing something that looks like work to us but to him is really you know it's uh he gets to eat lunch with other executives or something like that yeah um I'm not saying that he has to lie, but he just may not even perceive that his story is a little bit of a fiction to other people. Yeah, I think he does want to build the legend of Elon Musk. I think a lot Mm. of people who've already solidified their financial security want to build a a legend around themselves, a myth. They want to be storytellers and they want themselves to be the medium. Um, But it leads to some uh, outcomes that that other people cannot, it should not imitate.
0: Yeah. But I I guess a lot of people aspire or look up to him. And I think they can, like, based on the points you made, they can leave, lead themselves to disappointment. Um, So what would you recommend to those, those people that, that look at him that way? Uh, (laughs) That look at him like a God in a sense, right?
1: (laughs) If it seems too good to be true, it might be, I'm not saying it is, but if it seems too good to be true, at least challenge it. And maybe, there are other people that you have access to whose stories you could follow, right? You can ask them and maybe even challenge them or ask questions. You could say, okay, but do you do this? Uh, Can I shadow you for a day to like really validate that? Can I shadow you for a week? Right. To see if it really holds up that kind of thing can be helpful to get the real story.
0: Yeah. Do you think part of it is, is a vicarious attribution? Like I wish I could be that, but I'm not. So I'll just (laughs) live through that and through that legend, through that narrative.
1: Yeah. Elon definitely wants to give this impression that he is transcended and trans transcendence is so appealing that it permeates lots of philosophies and religions, but at the end of the day, um, it's probably not real. Transcendence is probably a, a, something that even Socrates or, (laughs) you know, or Plato or, you know, King David, somebody might want that to exist, but it really doesn't. Yeah. Uh, I think what's great is that if we really analyze stories, then, you know, from the historical perspective, um, transcendence really isn't something we should strive for. It's actually much more exciting. Well, maybe I shouldn't project, but um, (laughs) is, it would it be more interesting to watch, do we watch more movies about say like um well I shouldn't I shouldn't project for other people but we like to see people who fight forever. Yeah. Um that's what we know intrinsically is what life really is a mm-hmm. constant battle, and that's the human experience. And uh we just have to find a way to relate to that. And yeah, we imagine we could escape, we can transcend. Um, but there's no story that resonates as true when we see it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right? So So I guess let's, let's, let's go over to the personal life side of things. So what if, if you're described what it means to work smarter, what does it mean to live better?
1: Oh man, (laughs) take, take my work and make it life. Um, (laughs) I think for both work and life, sometimes living better just is trimming down the parts for me of my habits and my beliefs that I can live without and then invest that new bandwidth into the things that I absolutely want to build my life around. Yeah. Um that sometimes that manifests in cutting like side projects um that m- I think might make me wealthier or whatever and put the time back into family and screenwriting um or uh, just even giving myself gamble time, right? I don't have to allocate all of my time. Um I remember discussing with someone before about how I wanted to hack actually schedule in time to be bored every week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I couldn't plan what boring thing I would do. I, it was a requirement that up until that moment, I could not decide what I was going to do with the time. Yeah. Um, but just that gave me this bandwidth to, to live better. There was just going to be something that would manifest because I had made the space. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. And I, when you say all that, it makes me think that this year is, is very much an opportunity uh, or has been one for us to do what you're describing. Uh, you know, for those that, didn't take advantage of that, what would you tell them uh, 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 to do in this next year in that regard?
1: Well, what (laughs) that's challenging because um, some of us just don't have practice. Yeah. So it is a skill and a, and you know, like a skill you actually have to practice making space. You have to practice uh, trimming things off. So something that works for me, like is to turn it into like a fun exercise. Yeah. Um, make a list of things all the things that i spend time on or i'm interested in like you can even add your tv shows you like or you know groups you're a part of or like tennis practice or whatever you just put it all on the list and you go through the list and just at least challenge yourself like could i pick one thing off this list that's going to get cut just as an exercise just to feel that feeling of can i do it yeah but if you change your mind you can put it back on the dang list you can still do it <laughs> But it's a fun exercise to say, mm. can I once in a while make space? Yeah. So, or yeah. just pick a day of the week. Be like, on Saturday, I'm going to do two hours of something that I don't know yet. And I'll know yeah. on Saturday when <laughs> yeah. two <hours> show up. <laughs> so what,
0: what would you say to the people that have, with a clenched fist, held on to something this year that they really need to let go? And by holding on, they're actually making it worse for themselves and possibly others. What would you tell them?
1: Uh, It's, it's, this is a a thing that I've been pondering on. And sometimes we, you know, I I believe that giving up can sometimes be a strength. And I've realized that sometimes we're only okay with giving up if we call it something like letting go. Mm -hmm. But actually, sometimes it really is just giving up. Letting go sounds like being like, oh, they were going to go anyway, and we needed to emotionally detach. But that's yeah. not true. Maybe it is something where the other parties, everything is still allowing us to continue investing and we actually just have to give up. The real yeah. definition, it's not letting go. It's, it's literally saying I accept mm-hmm. defeat at a, at a point where it's not complete. Yeah. I could have continued and I'm not going to do it. Um, giving ourselves permission to give up. I'm not saying it's always good, but just being able to try that on and say like, I'm exhausted and this is exhausting me and I don't know what's going to replace it but I give up and then I can rebuild and start over.
0: Yeah. Now, a lot of people would say, well, what you're saying is I need to accept that I failed. Um, and a lot of people can't get there. What, what's what's going on there?
1: Um, I think big challenge is that, yeah, we do have a, a cultural predisposition for looking at the end state. Mm-hmm. Um, but time invested is already a success and i have an unfair bias because as a storyteller the experience becomes a commodity i can now (laughs) i have something (laughs) to talk about Uh, a place a a purpose for it right i have somewhere to package that and be like yep that goes into the story bank and now i i have something from that so that is unfair i don't think everybody has the ability to say it's storytelling but Maybe you have to figure out what works for you. Can, can it go on your resume? Um, do you need to maybe explore the idea of just writing down your experiences for yourself, journaling, maybe to appreciate what you've gone through? Yeah. Um, maybe offering mentorship to others. You don't have to finish the fight to be able to offer something to other people. Yeah. Um, shoot, there are tons of people who become teachers or or authors about (laughs) subjects that they're not actually, right, they're not number one in the field, they're just willing to talk about it, so.
0: Yeah, so speaking of stories, you know, what real or fictional stories, narratives shape you or have shaped you as a person or continue to shape you?
1: Wow, well, um, let's start early. Um, When I was a kid, you know, stories shaped me because I had access to my parents wanted me to read the classics. They hadn't read them themselves. And so they (laughs) didn't realize what they were getting into. They just thought our kid is smart and we want our kid to be gifted. They had this kind of like obsession with like, you know, we want our kid to excel intellectually. So they would, if I would watch, you know, PBS and they'd mention um, Sherlock Holmes or, the iliad by homer or some major classic you know hamlet they, my parents would be like yeah we don't know what's in it yeah but if it was on pbs you can read it that's fine and i'd read it and there would be murder and <laughs> sex and dishonesty and plotting and scheming and just the deepest darkest corners of humanity yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and that was great that was a window into the bigger world um and sometimes you got to see the best parts of humanity—the things that, you know, your parents or, or teachers couldn't do because they hadn't ever been put into these confrontational decisions. So you get to see it in literature. So for me, yeah. like, I said, um, oh, I, I let's see—I read like Jurassic Park was my favorite novel when I was yeah. <laughs> a kid, and uh, the Iliad, and um, then oh shoot, you're taking me way back, but like uh, Wuthering Heights like mm-hmm. those kind of high school reading books. Yeah. They but were
0: those were read. those books you read because of high school or did you seek them out before they were required?
1: Uh, may- well, it was always a combination. You know, you hear about the books that are in the the common parlance, like they're just, you know, canonical Yeah. classics. And like Catch-22 so I, I
0: read in probably ninth grade, I think, ninth or tenth grade.
1: Right, and how unprepared yeah. you might have been for <laughs> that narrative. But what's great is even if you can't digest it all, it's a big meal and you'll grow, right? Yeah. Um, I What else did I read? Oh, Fight Club, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> My parents were like, yeah, I mean, if it was a movie, it can't be that bad. And boy, <laughs> were they way off? <laughs> yeah. So um, Green Mile. So I guess what I think is a lot of the books – maybe that's the summaries. A lot of the books that are loved are loved for, for good reasons. Yeah. Um, and Oh, another thing that benefited me from those was shared experience. Because even if we're not talking about a shared real experience, you and the other people who've read it, now you have something in common, Yeah. Uh, common language, vocabulary, right? So I might not relate to someone else who read the green mile, but now we can both talk about it and, you know, they might have not loved the ending and I did, and we can talk about why and figure out the differences between us. So, those kinds yeah. of stories were just huge as a kid. Yeah.
0: And so how does how did that evolve as you became an adult? Stories. Well, And, and their effect on you.
1: Well, what's funny is my relation with stories has changed because now I have less respect for, <laughs> for bad stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can't say that everybody agrees on what bad stories are, but there's consensus, right? Like a lot of stories that aren't popular aren't popular just because you know, for a reason. And the ones that are are popular for a reason, it doesn't mean they're all perfect or, or completely flawed. Um, But I have a, I think I have a little bit of a better filter now. Um, When I was younger, if I read something and it was kind of crummy, I would sometimes think like, Oh, maybe I need to learn to like that crummy feature of it. (laughs) Got it. Um, But that's changed. Um, What ends up happening is I spend a lot of my time studying the master pieces Mm -hmm. Uh, and what that offers is I want to learn how to do something of what they do. That doesn't mean I want to write, rewrite the story or imitate the exact effect, but I study them. So, you know, I'll read the Hobbit 10 times that's not that weird for me, but I'll get more benefit from reading it 10 times than I would from get from reading nine other, nine other vastly inferior stories.
0: Yeah. And what's the dynamic shift between consuming stories and creating them?
1: Well, the big thing is obviously I wanted to create stories because they made an impact on me. They brought in my world and I realized I was okay at telling stories because when I would, you know, write stories just for my, you know, for school or for fun, people would like them. People, you know, some of it's your parents just saying like, oh, you're, you're the best. Good job. <laughs> but sometimes my peers or teachers would actually say like, you have potential. You keep doing this. Yeah. And then I would realize that most, the most important thing wasn't their actual storytelling enthusiasm or, or craft alone, right. That helps. But I realized as I got better at the craft and storytelling techniques and just the grammar, right. Those kinds of things. Uh, what they really offered was unique perspectives. So it made me grow as a person because I yeah. had to re- I had to offer something about the, in the stories I was creating. Yeah. Um, I had I knew that there were unknown stories I wanted to be able to tell one day, and so it made me challenge myself to become a more complete, whole, interesting person, right? Or else, or else I'm just somebody who's good at putting words on a page and have nothing to actually say in it, right? The actual yeah. content, so.
0: And I guess what motivates you to do that in terms of like, are you trying to contribute to, to, to an art that made an impact on you and so you're trying to pay it forward or is it something else?
1: Yeah. I want to, I do want to cause the same effect as other people have given me. And I understand that those great works are still out there, but also it's kind of like wanting to join a club or a family, right? You look at these people and you think like, I, I know JK Rowling and I I get it. It's, it's still this kind of like fandom admiration, but like, I know Shakespeare, I know Homer, like I get to relate to them and I want people to relate to me like that. And I want to join their club. I want to do my very best to to participate in the in the group and i don't know it kind of gives me a warm fuzzy feeling (laughs) yeah yeah
0: so let's shift from stories to systems so stories uh shape us but so do systems and systems impact us in ways we we recognize and ways we don't so what do you think about systems and how can we effectively um, participate in them as well as create them
1: well do you feel like You'd like to focus on, like, small personal systems or big social systems?
0: I mean, you could start uh, with one or the other and move towards the other. Well,
1: because that's such a loaded question, right? Um, Yeah. Systems. I I, I think
0: it's probably easier for people to understand it on a smaller level. And then, like, when you think about, you know, our universe or our solar system, like, I'll take our our solar system or our planet, right? the smaller you can get then you can kind of get a grasp on it and then go a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and the building blocks i guess help us uh, understand the bigger systems which are essentially function like a smaller one but just in a lot more complicated ways
1: well if i'm going to single out something that impacts me personally about personal systems uh, i think systems are a great tool to get the ball rolling no matter what your skill level is so they're kind of like just behavior templates, activity yeah. templates, a, a to-do list that yeah. you'll use a second time. Yeah. Um, that you ask us to kind of use a proven set of actions to get closer to our desired outcome, and yeah. then once the ball is rolling, you do have permission to just break or change the system. Or if you, you know, you do break or change the system, and you're like, ah, oh, now I'm lost or I'm not going to complete this, just mm-hmm. go back to the system, finish it in the within the boundaries. You have the flexibility to go in and out. Yeah, it's such a great way to get the ball rolling because um, I heard I've heard people call writer's block, like you know, fear that what they're going to write is bad. And I've experienced that. And I've heard people calling writer's block like, you know, a creative barrier. We don't know what to write about yet. And I've experienced a little of that. But ultimately, if I do know what I want to write and I'm not afraid that it's going to be bad, I still may not know how to turn the big idea into words to break it down. Um, but writing systems have helped me overcome that. Right. Yeah. So ultimately um, outlining is a system. Yeah. Um, or just writing a test page is a system, even getting down to the sentence level and saying like, okay, here's how I'm going to edit my, my writing. I'm going to, you know, make a pass where I look for a passive voice or, or yeah. where I work on making sure that the characters are rich and consistent. That's a system. Now, What's crazy about these personal systems is sometimes, you know, not to throw Elon Musk back under the bus, but sometimes <laughs> those people will tell you like, oh, I don't have a system. I just I just go by feel, I do it. But just because they don't know they have a system doesn't mean they don't have mm-hmm. one. They just might not know that their habits are really a system. Yeah. Um, some people get so good that they they think they know what they're doing and they don't realize that they're actually following a set of rules and they just, it's unconscious.
0: Yeah, and I guess what's unfortunate about that is those people have a lot to share if they took the time to sort of codify what's going on there um, instead of giving these sort of one line answers that are really unhelpful. I don't know if you've experienced that.
1: Um, Yeah, I do think that there's a little bit of ego that happens when people don't share systems two of those things. One is that people feel like if they share their system that you're going to compete with them and, and they're going to not have enough work or, you know, they're not going to have a good, a unique enough product. They don't realize that like, if I hand you the system and you work hard at it and improve it and use it, uh, I'll probably just improve on your version next and we'll continue. Yeah. Leapfrogging. Um, and there's usually more than enough work to do it. Um, and ultimately, if you can't continue to improve even after having shared your system, you're you really are just a fraud. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if the only thing that's helping you is scarcity, um, you're not delivering a better thing for the world. Um, yeah. You're essentially saying, "I know I'm not the best man for the job, but I don't want the best man for the job to do it. Yeah. Rather it be me. <laughs> yeah.
0: But is that usually like a almost like a fossilization that happens where maybe they were at one point they rode that success wave and then they never changed beyond that and so then they start to lose the thing that, that got them what they got them.
1: It can be, uh, right. Like, Oh man, I'm, I'm just too far in to change or I don't have to change. So why should I, uh, it's the idea that I get it. Like some bands make five great albums and then never make another one. That's good. Again, they just make 30 terrible ones. (laughs) Um, and I used to wonder when I was young, like how they're getting, they've got more experience. Shouldn't they get better? But you know, it's challenging. Um, also the expectations from the market change. Yeah. Uh, I have these amazing screenwriting mentors and some of them have been writing for decades. And one of the best strengths that they have is that they really do embrace modern writing. So, you know, TV shows used to be like sitcoms would, which would be like multi-camera mm-hmm. and you know, which means that the cameras all stay in the same spots. The sets are all indoors and don't change. Yeah. And then single camera came out. That's more of like, it looks more like a movie or a documentary It yeah. got really big and they've embraced it. They've yeah. grown in, and, and maybe that's not what they're doing all the time, but they largely know how to, and they could, if they wanted to, uh, and they yeah. don't discourage anybody else from doing it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. they see there being an abundance and they realize there's plenty of room for, for any sort of changes to their field. Uh, that's what makes me admire them as mentors. I think that's why we're a good fit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So, what else would you say about systems then?
1: Um, well, ultimately, um, calling a system a system isn't is a benefit. I know that in our egos, sometimes we feel like it's more impressive if we say we are winging it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, or, um, you know, we're uh, worried about how others will perceive us. They'll maybe we're afraid of again of that like being seen as a fraud if we say we had a system then they'll be like oh well then you're really not a creative writer you used a template so you're just a hack or whatever yeah um, but that's not true and ultimately if we have to make that little sacrifice to our reputation in order just to to be more sincere that's a sacrifice i'll make and i mm-hmm. encourage others even if they're not going to make that sacrifice as you know people who use systems at least um the rest of the audience that feels inferior because they they don't know the systems and they see other people and think they're not using it it's okay it's okay everybody uses systems yeah Um, and if they say they're not they they are (laughs) yeah
0: yeah (laughs) so and and one of the benefits of uh, recognizing that we are using a system is that it allows us as you said to to understand it and then change it so if it if we're not using a system then we can't change how we're doing it so
1: yeah i mean it It's weird because sometimes we're in systems that we don't call that, and we give ourselves permission because you know a a company is just a system of people interacting with each other. A business is, Um, and a religion is a system for living, right? Like a a set of rules and expectations, a set of beliefs that's systematic. Yeah. Um, So how how feel okay with those?
0: Yeah. So how can people cope? this year, as all of our many systems, some of which are being blown up or tested or some are holding strong, you know, how can people... Because I think our systems often give us a coping mechanism, whether it's personal or societal, to deal with stress or anxiety or trouble. Um, But this year is obviously uh, challenged systems in many ways at the individual to the collective level.
1: Well, it's hard to imagine, but when a system fails either it can't hold the pressure of what's expected of it or it just right it uh the the world has changed and the system hasn't grown it the destruction that happens whatever comes from that will eventually be better in some meaningful way um and that doesn't mean that just because the system is falling apart that it's about to come back out on the other side perfect right rebuilding might take a very long time yeah but I really do believe that what eventually comes out of it will be better. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could be progressive, but sometimes holding on too tightly is going to prevent you from getting to the better thing. Um, And that doesn't just mean that when you leave something bad, right? The system breaks and you go to a new system. Version 2.0 may not be the right place to stop either. You might have to go five versions in but eventually there will be a better system and you will, you'll get to experience that.
0: Okay. And so when does a system become tyrannical?
1: (laughs) Um, when it expects, well, that's tough. Um, there are some intangible goods in the world. They are hard to quantify or identify. Um, So that would be those intangible goods are just feeling like we have uh, a little bit of self-determination and comfort, peace, right? And sometimes we will exchange those things. We'll exchange either self-determination, right? We'll give up some freedom or we'll um, give up some peace, right? Like we'll actually say like, let's maximize liberty and and people are going to have a terrible life. And... Ultimately, it's tyrannical when we want to drive it all the way towards peace or all the way towards self-determination. Neither of those work out. So we yeah. have to continue the tightrope walk of saying, like, let's lean a little bit towards uh, a, a, a more peaceful system or a more satisfying system, a more equitable system. Oh, let's lean towards a little more autonomous and self-determining system. Um, and you have to wiggle a little bit at a time every day. Um, it's hard because that means every day you wake up and you have to say, <laughs> I'm going to move the system in whatever little nudge it needs. The lazy, I shouldn't say lazy, the easier solution is just to say, you know what? I think it would just drive it all the way towards the extreme edge. Let's just make it all about self-determination. Yeah, And that's tyrannical. It, yeah. it may look like anarchy, but then a warlord rises up from the anarchy and they're a tyrant.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, or let's move it all towards peace and safety. Oh, well, the safest thing is just to put everybody in handcuffs so no one can hurt anyone else, right? <laughs> let's just all you know, tie ourselves to the wall and that's really the safest. Well, that's not a life worth living. I'd rather be unsafe. Yeah. Uh, than tied down where nothing can hurt me in a padded yeah. room. Right. That's a an asylum. That's not, that's not a life <laughs> worth living. Um, yeah. and that's tyrannical too. Uh, so that's when systems get tyrannical is when you want to drive towards the extremes and you're unwilling to walk the tightrope anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, you've shared a lot. So what, uh, what other words of wisdom do you have for us? Um, what have you uh, wanted to say I haven't had a chance to?
1: Oh man, uh, words of wisdom. Well, that's flattering. Um, <laughs> I would say the barrier between being extremely unhappy and being extremely happy is razor thin. Um, you can move from one to the other in the blink of an eye and you might not even realize how it happened. Um, that can just seem like such a surprise for us, right? Like when tragedy hits, that's mm-hmm. that's the worst of it, and I don't want to scare everybody. Yeah. But sometimes, just things that we didn't realize would make us so happy can make us so extremely happy, um, you know, if we let it. Yeah. Um, and the other thing about that is we have to kind of be aware of it that that it's such a thin margin. Uh, because it'll make us being sensitive to that can make us much kinder to others we can be the source of someone else's emotional or material happiness or or sadness with something that to us means very little yeah um, so for example we might not know that somebody's having a great day but if we make a sarcastic joke a joke that we didn't think mattered that it's going to ruin their day so just don't don't make the joke if it's all the same to you i get it it may seem like you're free speech and you're right and all this stuff but ultimately leave the world better than you found it just let it go right yeah um just because it doesn't mean a lot to your happiness or sadness doesn't mean you shouldn't care about it for someone else i'll even go to to those who might object you don't have to even be empathetic to the other person's cause you don't (laughs) have to put yourself in their shoes um just be less attached to your own perspective and your own possessions and ultimately you'll be happier too um you'll you realize how extremely thin it is and kind of let it go. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, You don't have to rationalize it. It's one of those things that like I said is one of those intangible goods. yeah uh, So without sacrificing your own happiness just sometimes if you you don't have to rationalize or justify something, um, I think a great example is this. Sometimes when somebody asks us to make a change and we're indifferent to it, we'll refuse to make the change. Not because we don't want to change or because it costs us something, but just because we believe that we could extract something from the person who's asking us. You asked me to go left and I would have been indifferent to going left. I might have even done it on accident, but you asked me to because it benefits you. Why don't you compensate me? Give me something to go left because it means so much to you. Don't do that. Don't don't make that difference. Let that razor thin happiness for someone else come to fruition and someone else will do it for you. It's much better than a transaction.
0: Yeah, yeah cool well thank you for sharing what anything else
1: oh gosh um (laughs) i just think about what i've been thinking about lately um i think we talked a little bit about giving up but i think sometimes we forget that fighting can be a good thing too um and i'm not (laughs) i'm not asking people to to incite violence or or get into stupid petty arguments that's not what fighting it um but sometimes people don't realize how so important something is to you unless you raise your voice. Um, yeah. And that doesn't mean fight all the time. But just like I said about that balance, don't let fighting or giving up be tyrannical in your life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, walk the tightrope. Be willing to fight even if you've become a very peaceful person. Yeah. Um, figuring out what you actually think is worth fighting about. Um, don't be lazy or depressed, but you know, don't be non-confrontational either. Right? Like. Yeah you can fight um and i think a person could work on choosing when to fight and when not to fight for their whole life you'll never master it you'll wake up and there'll be something you never considered fighting or not fighting about and you have to think about it yeah (laughs) and if you're not willing to think about it then yeah you're you've you've given up in the wrong way
0: yeah so would you say what would you say there's two sides of that there's someone who's inclined to fight they're looking for an excuse to fight so yeah. what would you tell them? And then there's the other person that is like, I don't want to conflict. I I want to just hope things work out. You know, What would you say to those two extremes, the extremely per- peaceful person and the extremely uh, fighting person?
1: Yeah, well, it, <laughs> it's funny because you've asked me to say something to both of them at the same time, and that's tough because uh, I would pull them each aside and talk to them separately so they didn't misinterpret the other's message. Yeah. Um, if you can't practice. So this is such an internal thing because some people say, well, I fight half the time and I'm peaceful half the time, but you might be being a hundred percent wrong. You might be fighting all the wrong things and being peaceful on all the wrong things. You're a hundred percent wrong, even though you split it 50, 50. Yeah. And all you can do is challenge yourself that no one else can challenge you the way you can challenge yourself and say, am I really fighting for a a good thing and am i really being passive or letting go of the right thing am i giving up on the right thing um for me i just have the values of is this um is this the best thing for everyone and is this right like you know is this a, a universally good thing and is this something i can live with right like sometimes i've had to change what i can live with and i find that i'm comfortable with it Um, but I think that's what stops a lot of people. They think that they couldn't live with doing something that, that once they did it, they'd be like, Oh, I was, I was very wrong. I could definitely live with that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So what's, what's, what is it that they're missing that leads them to believe that? Is it just a lack of experience or something else?
1: Yeah. It's life experience. we we feel like we couldn't live with something. And then one day maybe we're forced to experience it. And then we're like, Oh, that's uh, it's green eggs and ham, Dr. Seuss. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I wouldn't do it anywhere under any circumstance. And then he's so exhausted by Sam. I am his antithesis, right? The, the person screaming at him from the other side, he tries the green eggs and ham and realizes not only that he could tolerate it, but that he likes it. Um, ultimately it's a, the problem is he, he, could have just jumped ahead and said, okay, this is something I could, I could tolerate experiencing. Um, and even if we don't dive into experiencing the things that make us uncomfortable, Having more new original experiences will, in a roundabout sort of way, get, still get us there. Enough yeah. experiences of any sort will eventually get you mm-hmm.
0: there. So w- what would you say to, to um, people in our society? I, I think in a lot of ways we, we experience things, we experience the life we have, and we often assume that it's sort of uh, univer- or universal, Right, But we really do have different experiences and in, in, in who we are and where we come from and a variety of variables affect that. So what would you say to those people? How would you encourage them um, to, I guess, learn about those other experiences that they have not yet done?
1: Well, I'll plug for storytelling because that's what I do. But uh, yeah. that's one way. Read stories that are just diverse. Um, yeah. I remember in college, um, I'm not making light of this at all, but I would sign up for literature Classes that were very different for me. I signed up for post-colonial literature, meaning uh, basically after Great Britain and America had gone all over the world and controlled everything. Uh, you know, we left a lot of messes in a lot of countries, and we had to read literature about that. And that was kind of uncomfortable because it made yeah. you feel like, oh man, people <laughs> like me have done something bad before. Um, yeah. And and I gotta kind of hear it. I have to get an earful, even though I don't live in those countries that are negatively affected. Yeah. Um, and yeah it was there were times where i was like okay i've had enough but other times where i was like i've left with something i understand something i didn't understand before yeah Uh, the other one was um talk to strangers talk to people who are different from you and talk to them in a setting that is not about the thing that you disagree about yeah (laughs) um I understand that like, Hey, you want the best man for the job, like workplace diversity and stuff. But if you're looking at ultimately a large pool of qualified people, sometimes it helps to pull in somebody who's different just so that you're challenged to, to learn a totally different way of seeing the world. Yeah. Um, And you can't do that. Like uh, there is intellectual diversity in people who are ethnically the same. I I totally believe and understand that. Um, But then you're neglecting a very important part of the the human experience and that is just looking different than yeah. other people or having been born in a different country or speaking a different language or having a yeah. different physical ability level yeah uh, you do have to talk to those people and you don't just have to talk about the thing that makes you different from them. yeah <laughs> <laughs> just talk about something you both like that that can yeah. be a huge way to be like oh wow we both like the same thing in a different way that's that's great
0: yeah. Yeah. So what are you up to now? How can people connect with you if they want to reach out or if they want to work with you to help them uh, with some writing or editing?
1: Great. So if people want to work with me um, in marketing, writing, editing, um, and in the entertainment world, uh, Williams at gmail.com is okay. great. Um, that will you know go straight to my inbox. And obviously you can reach me on like Twitter with direct messages, it's at Addison Blue, A D D I S O N B L U. There's no E at the end of blue. Okay. Um, but, you know, we could follow or direct message. I make noise on there. Uh, Facebook, it's also at facebook.com slash Addison Blue, I think. Um, so you can connect with me and I answer, I, you know, I get a maybe a, a DM like once a month or something. So I answer everything that comes yeah. to me. Um, okay.
0: Sounds good. And then, what if someone like what are the types of things that you're you're looking to do right now, or the types of work you're looking
1: for? Great. Yeah. So the Projects. biggest. Yeah. Um, these days, I am still um, enjoying and thriving on uh, doing marketing strategies, especially for small businesses. So people yeah. who need creative problem solving, that's excellent. That's fun, and I can offer something other people can't, um, and that is that I will create unique solutions, especially if you've been beating your head against the wall or tried a standard solution, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I will get you there, especially around digital marketing and content strategy. And ultimately, uh, if you need a unique voice to do the writing and editing, uh, that's me. Okay. Uh, and then finally, um, I still am working towards uh, staffing a TV show. I highly doubt there's a TV showrunner who's <laughs> <is> listening <laughs> and they usually want their friends to uh, to, to work with them. And I totally understand. Uh, but if the uh, opportunity ever came up, I, I would take it. So,
0: so well, specifically, what would be the thing that would trigger them to go? I should talk to Addison in terms of the type of uh, screenplay.
1: If people have heard something in my experience, that sounds like something they've never been able to find in their writer's room. And they just want somebody who's had different life experiences. Um, that's me. If they heard like, wow, he was in special operations. I haven't had a screenwriter in special operations. And I write about the military in our show, Mm -hmm. Uh, or I have a military character or somebody who played professional games or music. And I don't have that in the writer's room. Um, I'm a great person to pull for that uh, because I've done enough things that enough people haven't done.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cool. Well, uh, anything else before we wrap up here?
1: No, I appreciate your time. I do love uh, talking and telling my own story, right? That's maybe the story I have to really think about the most. So just yeah. having the opportunity has been awesome. I hope somebody benefits from it.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate your time as well. For additional stories and systems to work smarter and live better, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's Jason Scott Montoya. .com. Thank you for joining us on this episode and we look forward to having you listen in to the next episode of Grow Your Life.